Welcome to The Alexander Standard. Today's episode, Polly Paracon, The Dancing Clown? Welcome to The Alexander Standard, where we rank all the successors of Alexander the Great, from Perdiccas to Cleopatra VII. My name is Dustin. And I'm Meredith. And how you doing, Meredith? I'm okay. Polly Paracon, man, he, uh, <clears throat> woo, I tell you, when there's so little about him, Dustin finds a way to dig it up. Maybe mm-hmm. too much. Yeah. Any any news? Anything that's newsworthy, Meredith? No, not that I can think of. Oh, oh, I know one. We're going to be presenting at Intelligent Speech. The theme is contingencies. And I got to tell you, talking about backup plans, Alexander gives us plenty to work out there. We haven't selected our topic yet, but... TB that D, we'll be getting back to you. But as Meredith has all already done, the promo is up on our Twitter for the whole conference. And please come check it out. Good news is you got a good four months. Meredith, I've been looking at our statistics and I've noticed there are several areas where we have had exact we've had exactly one listener. And I want to go ahead and uh, call those places out. Costa Rica, Ecuador, the Isle of Man. Iran, South Korea, Tanzania, and Zambia. I just wanted to say to the people who've listened to us there, we see you, we notice you, and we thank you. Just wanted to make sure that no one was going unnoticed. Yeah, there's that. Oh, 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 Meredith, I got to tell you, I don't know about you, but I had a good time at our first annual first Rexicon. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, and I say it like that, first annual first, because... um, it was totally an unofficial thing, but we had the pleasure of hanging out with Roberto from Czar Power and Quinn and Maggie from Noblesse Oblige. You can see pictures of it up on Twitter that Roberto, our, um, I think we can call him definitely the official cameraman because he had like the fancy. Oh, yeah. He yeah, had a right. real camera. Right. Not just a phone. We had a great time. Hung out with Roberto. I'm going to go ahead and call him out. He had never seen Ted Lasso, but me and Meredith fixed that for him. Mm-hmm. Had a great mm-hmm. time. Loved hanging out with Quinn and Maggie. Great people. We trekked in the terrible heat, but we got that empanada by the end of the day. Yes, indeed. And the next day, we all three agreed we ain't going nowhere. Nope. Yep. So that was fun. Had a great time. Thank you to Roberto, Quinn, and Maggie, and to the DC Metro system because <laughs> it got it helped out. And let us begin. I think everyone's been excited because Polly Paracon, we've just been like, we've just been ripping on him the whole time. And it's just been like, I can't wait to get to him. Can't wait to get to him. Here we are. Let's see if he does disappoint us. He will. <laughs> All right. <laughs> etymology. We're going to start with that etymology, Meredith. You ready? Okay. Let me just Hold crack. Okay. Your favorite pin just exploded. All right, so you're going to want to get a new pin because I can't talk you through how I managed to keep that one afloat. Just put all the pieces to the side. It's one of that awkward things. It's my fa- one of my favorite pins because it writes so well, but it does tend to explode. But as a good country boy, I can't throw anything away. All right. The other explanation of why I can't throw anything away is because we found out that I have Neanderthal DNA that makes me have a proclivity towards hoarding. So, etymology. According to the history of Macedonia.wordpress.com, Polypericon's name is a compound of two Greek words, poly meaning much and sperco meaning rush. So this is likely the reason that many sources alternatively refer to polypericon with the additional S 
as Polysparacon because the maybe the stem of his part of the stem of his name has Sparco. But the consensus, especially among the older sources, seems to be that Polypericon is the accurate form and pronunciation. So that was his name would be Mini Rush or Much Rush. Oh, Much yeah, rushing. We, yeah, oh, yeah, because we're going to do the meme of the Doge thing of like Mini Rush, very quick, Mini Fast. Okay. Yeah, I, I think this wins for worst name so far. You think so? Even I it think beat, so. Does it beat Partridge? That at least is a cute animal that I can take home. That's that is 100% true. Okay. Early life and career. I will begin our discussion of Polypericon's life and career in the manner that has become customary here at the Alexander Standard. <clears throat> As for Polypericon's early life, not much is known. <laughs> telling you, man, when we do merch, that's the t-shirt. According to Elizabeth Carney, Polypericon was probably born Around the same time as Philip II, he might have been a little younger, which would put the date of his birth somewhere in the late 380s. He was likely born in a region known as Timphaya, a place that, according to Carney, was long considered part of Epirus, but incorporated into Macedonia in early in the reign of Philip II, but only after Polypericon had reached adulthood. This is interesting to note because, as we'll see in our discussion later, Polypericon appears to have a consistently close relationship with the Epirots. Now, do you remember the significance of Epirus? Yes, that is where Olympias is from. That is correct. It's to the west of Macedon. They would not be like the Thracians, so the Macedonians didn't necessarily look at the Epirots as barbarians, but there seems to be some sort of hierarchy where even the Macedonians look down with the Epirots a little bit. Although there's no definitive proof, it does appear probable that Polypericon was even a descendant of or related to the old defunct ruling family of Timphaya before it had been absorbed variously into the Epirot or Macedonian kingdoms. And I say variously because at certain points it's going to look like Timphaya. It's basically straddling Epirus and Macedon. And, you know, when we look at ancient maps, when we see these definitive neat lines drawn across regions... That's not accurate. That's not an accurate portrayal of ancient political geography. There would not have been a clear dividing line. So it seems like parts of Timphaya were in both Epirus and Macedon. Thus, technically speaking, Polypericon may not even have been considered Macedonian, or at least he would be considered as coming from a recent addition to the Macedonian kingdom. So the way I understand this is that he may have occupied a social status below some of the proper Macedonians like Ptolemy or Seleucus or Antigonus, but he definitely would have been above people like Eumenes. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was going to be my next question was, were we headed for a Eumenes situation? So, I mean, there there does later seem to be some evidence of like tension with like the the real, whatever that means, Macedonians or the true Macedonians, but he was never looked at as an outsider. We know that Polypericon's father was named Simeos, but other than that, we got nothing else. <laughs> we don't know anything else about him. It's like, we have a father. We, we have a dad. In fact, our boy Pauly doesn't appear in any historical source until 333, after the Battle of Isos, when Alexander gave Polypericon a battlefield promotion, because someone had died, to the rank of Strategos, with command over a large unit called a Toxis, which was so around 1,500 men. So he didn't get it because he did a good job. He did it because someone died. 
<laughs> that's all I, yeah that's a really good point i i see that you're not smiling and laughing but i want to inform no, you i am what, smiling yeah, i was gonna, like, I was gonna like, tell you that's funny that's, what, that's what's happening at my job right now no one no, died no one died no but <laughs> someone might be getting promoted and if so it's because she does an awesome job all right so in modern terms at least for the u.s army this would be the equivalent of being promoted to the rank of lieutenant colonel over a large battalion we talked about the Macedonian military in our episode about Philip, and I touched on the organization a little bit there, but and this seems like a good opportunity to go into a little bit more detail about the organizational structure of the Macedonian army. This is coming from two books, The Macedonian Empire, The Era of Warfare under Philip II and Alexander the Great by James Ashley, and Alexander's Veterans and the Early Wars of the Successors by Joseph Roisman who I had the pleasure of meeting and having lunch with last month. Are you serious? Yeah. That was I, him? Yes, I got his book. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Turns so out, cool. As for the infantry, the smallest tactical unit in the Macedonian army was the Syntagma, comprising 256 men. These soldiers were arranged in ranks, either in ranks of eight men deep and 32 across, or in a 16 by 16 square. Six Syntagma then formed a Taxis, T-A-X-I-S, which would be around 1,536 soldiers commanded by a Strategos, which is a general term for a commander or a general. Finally, multiple Taxais could be grouped together to form a full phalanx army. For perspective here, Ashley states that when Alexander first crossed into Asia, he had an army composed of six Taxais totaling around 9,000 men. Why are you laughing? It just sounded like those math problems. What math problems? From like when you're little, it's like, if one unit equals a thing and three units <laughs> make it this, and I was just watching it build up in my mind. If I have 256 men and I turn that into a Toxus and I have six Toxus, how do I conquer Macedon? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the answer is purple. Always purple. <laughs> Dear listeners, that's because... Here at the Alexander Standard, we believe that math is witchcraft. So, being promoted to command a taxis of around 1,500 soldiers is a pretty big deal for Polyparicon. But, to your point earlier, the fact that Polyparicon was promoted to such a high position not only implies that he was an experienced veteran, but also that he had likely served as far back as Philip II's reign and had been part of Alexander's Persian campaign from the very start. So, he was a proven commander. We don't hear of Polyparicon again until two years later, where he is again mentioned as an infantry commander at the Battle of Galgamela, which was the last battle fought between Alexander the Great and Darius III. Interestingly, this was where, as we mentioned previously, we find out that Polyparicon was in command of troops from Timphaya, his hometown region. There's also a story in Curtius Rufus that Polyparicon had suggested a night attack on the Persian camp before the battle, and Alexander apparently scoffed at this and kind of called Polyparicon a coward. I was about to say, was that done or would that be seen as a breaking of the tradition that you didn't attack people at night? To paraphrase Alexander, he said that what Polyparicon had suggested was the equivalent of like what thieves and brigands would do, you know, crawling around and sneaking. I think he said something like, the goal of people like that is not victory, it's deceit. And he's like, and I'm not going to do that. Gotcha. The implication would be, 
would still be the idea that like this was kind of an insult to Bali Paracon or, you know, scolding him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So details are pretty spotty for the next six or seven years, but it does appear that Bali Paracon was active still during Alexander's Indian campaign in 327. Arian and Curtius Rufus, for instance, both state that Polypericon served under the somewhat famous Crateros. Ooh. Yes, that's going to be important for how Polypericon gets back into Macedon pretty soon. And yet, we may recall from our episodes on Alexander himself that around this time, you know, during the Indian campaign, Alex was starting to act a little bit weird. He started, he was, he was already calling himself the son of Zeus. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Like, this is fine, you know. Zeus is my daddy. But now, Alex was also ordering his soldiers to start mm-hmm. paying respect to him in yeah. the Persian fashion. The whole prostrate yourself mm-hmm. down on the ground and yeah. they got upset. And he said, yeah. fine, you don't have to do it unless you really want to. Yeah, but it's with Pavli Paracon that we actually get to zoom in on one such occasion. Now, this I, bet just- he, I bet he laid flat on the ground. You think so? He strikes me as the kind. Strikes me as the kind that just lays flat on the ground, just right? Flattens. Just kisses the, <laughs> kisses dirt. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. So this <laughs> this whole thing is called the proskinesis. Mm-hmm. It was a tiered gesture of respect and changed in accordance to your social status, but its ultimate form involved, yeah, like you said, prostrating yourself. That is laying face down on the ground before the king. What do we remember about how the Macedonians traditionally viewed their commanders and kings? First amongst equals. That's right. Mm-hmm. So like you already said, the Macedonian rank and file do not like this. Nope. Inter polypericon. According to Curtius Rufus, at a banquet in 327, a group of Persians entered the room and showed their respect to Alexander by performing the proskinesis and laying face down on the ground. Polypericon, who was at the banquet sitting behind and above Alexander, and that's going to matter in a minute, apparently thought this was hilarious, and he started mocking the Persians. Supposedly, he looked at one of the Persians that were lying face down on the ground, and he said something like, you should just bang your chin harder on the ground or something. But Alexander's going to bang his chin on the ground. Ooh, someone's psychic. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Because I'll tell you who didn't laugh. Alex. Alexander did not laugh. And I want to point out that I'm paraphrasing this next bit. So, reportedly, Alexander was furious and shouted, What, you don't respect me, bruh? You laughing at me? In response to this, Polypericon said something to the effect of, No, I'm not laughing at you, bruh, but you need to calm down. It's very much um, Loki yelling at the Hulk in the first Avengers movies, like, I am a god! And then Hulk just thrashes him. Puny god. Mm -hmm. Well, this didn't sit well with Alex. He stood up, grabbed Polypericon, threw him on the ground, and said, Now whose chin's on the ground? I was right. Yes, you were. And then he threw Polypericon in prison and canceled the rest of the party. We don't know how, why, or when, but at some point, Alexander did calm down and he let Polypericon out of prison. Oh, do we just get like a, a note in the sources that's like, and he's out there on the battlefield again. And you're oh, like, oh, no, we literally just get the next reference that just says that sometime afterwards, Alexander oh, released Polypericon. And he gives Thank no gotcha. explanation of why. So Carney says that following this, Alexander continued to place Polypericon and Crateros together on operations because he, you know, had the impression it appeared that he thought they worked well together. 
To that end, it was probably for this reason that when Alexander sent Krateros back to Macedon in 324 with 10,000 veterans, mm-hmm. he appointed Polypericon as Krateros' second in command. Gotcha. So they're heading on back. Right. Interestingly, our source for that Arian says specifically that Krateros was very sick at the time and that Polypericon was sent along just in case Krateros should happen to die along the way. Uh, it's worth pointing out, however, that Carney suggests that the stories about Poly Paracon and Curtius Rufus, which includes the Chin thing, are apocryphal and untrue, but we can dream. 323 to 322. At some point, Alexander died? Maybe? God dang it. I know, every time. I feel like we got here much faster. We did, and we're actually going to get past it much faster. Yeah. You want to know how fast we're going to get past it? We're not even going to talk. You may recall that as soon as the Greeks heard that Alexander died, They immediately rebelled against Macedon, and a conflict came to be called the Lamian War. Mm -hmm. At the time, Macedon was being ruled by whom? Do you remember? Antipater. Antipater, the old man who refused to die. My grandpa. And it was uh, called the Lamian War because Antipater had a tough time in the war initially. And he spent the better part of 322 holed up in a northern Greek city called Lamia while he waited on reinforcements from the east. Well, as we mentioned in Antipater's own episode, one of the Greek groups who fought against Macedon during the Lamian War were the Aetolians. Do you remember them? No. Okay. So <laughs> they are. No, that's fine. Like uh, the Aetolians were like hillbilly pirate mountain folk. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yeah. Those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They lived in western Greece. I had an epiphany when I was writing this. Like, I think one way to look at it is if they were a video game, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be the final enemies. No. It wouldn't be the final boss, but they would definitely be those enemies in the middle level of the game that you hate fighting because they're just so bleeping annoying. And I feel like you probably can give us a good Age of Empires comparison, maybe. Oh, I cannot beat Poland in the Genghis Khan campaign. Okay. I just have to skip it. It's not the final chapter in yeah. the campaign, but yeah, it's, it's so just, hard. It's just not worth it, right? Yeah, because no. the Aetolians just won't quit, like to the point of the of stupidity. They just keep going. So, well, it's funny that I say that because they're about to quit something. Even though the Aetolians had fought alongside the other Greeks at first against Macedon, they eventually just went home in early 322. Later that year... Antipater finally got reinforcements when Krateros arrived. Well, he had already gotten some reinforcements, but he got some more reinforcements when Krateros arrived, and they succeeded in defeating the rest of the Greeks. Most importantly for our story, of course, we know that Polypericon, at this point, will have arrived with Krateros. So now we can place him in Greece and Macedon, therefore, in 322. Gotcha. Consequently... Antipater spent the rest of 322 cleaning up the fallout of the Lamian War, settling things in southern Greece, particularly Athens, stuff like sending out bounty hunters to round up instigators, cutting out tongues, you know, business as usual. Furthermore, and an important detail for Polypericon's story, later on, Antipater abolished the democratic governments of many Greek states, including and especially Athens, who had rebelled against Macedon as punishment and he replaced them with oligarchic governments. In an oligarchic system, participation in the government was determined not by citizenship, but by wealth. You had to have a certain amount of money or property, like net worth. The result, obviously, is that the poor lost any and all say in politics. And you need to remember this fact later on, for especially for Polypericon, because he's going to try to do something kind of nice, and it's going to blow up in his face. 
so that's the recap of the situation uh, for 323, 322, which brings us into, surprisingly, 321, <laughs> which is where which is where Polyparacon pops up. So now we're at 321. Let's turn back to the Zetolians. Do you remember that they had initially fought Mastodon against Mastodon in the Lamian War? Yes, because well, you said it not like less than five a minute minutes ago. ago. Well, when mm-hmm. I took the notes, it looked like it was going to be longer. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Antipater also remembers. In early 321, Antipater and Crateros turn back north in order to finish things up with the Aetolians. Although outnumbered, the Aetolians dug in, fortifying defensible cities and other people taking the civilian populations up into their mountain strongholds and prepared for a siege. At first, the Aetolians held their ground against the Macedonian assaults. But as winter approached towards the end of 321, they began to have some problems. As Diodorus Siculus says, I'm just going to let you know, Diodorus Siculus is all up in the rest of this episode. He's my Uh, best friend. You like him? He's a good guy. Our old boy Diodorus says that the Macedonians had forced the Aetolians, quote, to stay through the winter and to hold out in regions that were covered with snow and lacking in food. Because of this, Diodorus continues, the Aetolians were brought into the greatest dangers, for they had either to come down from their mountains and fight against forces numbering many times their own and against famous generals, or to remain and be utterly destroyed by want and cold. Fortunately for the Aetolians, however, around this time, almost like a god had pitied them out of an admiration for their courage, according to Diodorus, their luck changed when Antipater and Crateros were joined by a new ally, Antigonus the One-Eyed. Antigonus, of course, was previously the satrap of Phrygia, so modern-day central Anatolia, but he had recently come into conflict with the current regent of the kings, Perdiccas. Dun, dun, dun. You know, remember, like, this is the guy that Perdiccas said, hey, help out Eumenes, and Antigonus said, don't tell me what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Antigonus told Antipater and Crateros all the terrible things that Perdiccas had been doing, including, hey, Antipater, Perdiccas is not going to marry your daughter. He's going to marry Cleopatra, Alexander's mm. sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he convinced Antipater to lead a rebellion against Perdiccas. Antipater agreed. And immediately began to make preparations for war against Perdiccas in what we will know as the First War of the Diadochoi. This is what brings us back to the Aetolians. Now that Antipater had bigger fish to fry in the east, he decided to make a quick peace with the Aetolians while he tangled with Perdiccas, fully intending to come back and finish them off later. Yeah. <laughs> so never you th- sit here, I'm going to handle this. And then I'll come kill you. And I'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> And when I come back, don't prep while I'm gone. You're not allowed. Nevertheless, this is good news for the Aetolians because they avoided starvation and defeat in battle. So we'll see what happens. Okay. Yeah. It's all come full picture here because when you're like, something helped them. Antigonus showed up. I'm like, that's more people. But uh, he led him away. Yes. He distracted Antipater. So like, yeah, the Aetolians, they got a reprieve. They're going to be like the most minor recurring character. And I just say that because they keep popping up. I feel uh, that, like that's been Polyparacon thus far throughout the series. So in the meantime, by the end of 321, Antipater, along with Crateros and Antigonus, departed from Macedon in order to go fight Perdiccas in Asia. And here we come. All of this has been to say, in his place, Antipater left Macedon under the control of Polyparacon. Yay! Naming him the Strategos of Europe. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Well, lot? when he says Europe, he means Macedon and Greece. So, okay, yeah, I, like, I mean Europe. 
Well, we'll get wow. the whole thing, even though we haven't conquered yet. I was about to say, I didn't know we'd even touch Spain. Now we're in 320. We don't have a lot of information on Polypericon's activities while he was in charge of Macedon for the early half of the year, but he does pop up onto the scene in the summer of 320 when someone decides that they want to get froggy again. The Aetolians. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. That's why I spent all that time setting them up because they're <laughs> back. Now, remember, Antipater left Macedon to go fight Perticus. This is important because, according to Diodorus, and like one thing I love about doing our episodes is I, I'm always finding new stuff. That would have been great for previous episodes. Um, but according to Diodorus, something I did not know before, the Aetolians had actually possibly struck a deal with Perticus. I don't know whose side I'm grass. on. I don't know whose yeah. side I'm on. <laughs> Snakes in the grass. So according to Diodorus, the Aetolians themselves had struck a deal with Perticus and launched an attack in Thessaly, northern Greece, but also Bacedon's backyard, essentially. Explicitly for the purpose of diverting Antipater. And honestly, this was a pretty smart move on part of Perticus. Well, how like, verifiable is this? As much as anything else in Diodorus's accounts. Cool. Like, it doesn't seem to be a one-off. It doesn't seem to be a fabrication from what I can see. And all of this is to say, I know that you have remarked at how anti-Pertican that I've sounded as of mm -hmm. late. Yeah. And I think I got to admit, I'm coming around to respect him just a little bit more. I still expect everyone to do better than him, but I'm not going to, like, I'm not going to let him off the hook for the debacle at the Nile River, but I don't dislike him as much as I had before. You're just disappointed. I'm disappointed. He let me mm -hmm. down. In any case, as we said, the Aetolians were now stirring up trouble for Macedon by invading the Greek region of Thessaly. Diodorus says that they were pretty successful at first, and after capturing some towns and defeating a Macedonian army, the Aetolians had actually convinced most of the Thessalian Greeks to join them in a brand new rebellion against Macedon. What we're learning here is that the Greeks never know and never learn when to shut up and stop rebelling. Pretty soon, this combined Aetolian-Thessalian army had grown to around 25,000 infantry and 1,500 cavalry, which is pretty considerable numbers considering a year earlier they can only muster an army of 10,000. Unfortunately for the Thessalians in this new rebellion, they were abandoned once again by the Aetolians, who all of a sudden returned home. What had happened was, while the Aetolians were busy fighting Macedon, yet another group of Greeks, this time the, Ar the Akarnarnians, who were longtime enemies of the Aetolians, had invaded Aetolia, and so the Aetolians had to turn back, go back home, secure their homeland, which they were successful at doing. But in order to do so, they had to leave their Thessalian allies behind to fend for themselves. Taking advantage of this, in comes the current Strategos of Macedon, Polypericon, who, according to Diodorus, came into Thessaly with a considerable army, and by defeating the enemy in battle, recovered Thessaly. I, I mentioned that all that stuff about the Aetolians having to go back home because I have a hunch, even though I couldn't find any evidence to support it, that Polypericon had arranged for the, the Akronanians to attack Aetolia because the timing is very convenient. Hmm. And if so, kudos to Polypericon. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have anything else about Polypericon's activity in Macedon for the rest of 320. And this is likely because events in Macedon were overshadowed by the rest of the absolute nonsense in the First War of the Diadochoi taking place in Anatolian Egypt, where, as we know, Yemeni scored some... <laughs> just bobbing her head like it's just the mo like the best song she's ever heard. Yemeni scored some major victories over Antipater's allies, Craterus and Neoptolemus. Perticus was feeding his men to crocodiles. 
sarcasm, but also true, getting stibity stabbed while Antipater himself stopped at Triparadesos in modern day Lebanon, mm-hmm. where in accordance with what became known as the Treaty or Partition of Triparadesos, Antipater became the new de jure regent of the kings, but de mm-hmm. facto high commander of the Macedonian Empire. And redistributed or confirmed existing satrapies and ultimately returning Macedon, returning to Macedon with both kings in tow. Yep. I think that's the longest sentence I've ever typed. So turning back to the story at hand, in 319, Antipater returns to Macedon as the regent of the kings. But his tenure doesn't last very long because in three ni- late 319, the man who just wouldn't die died this turned out to be a big moment as we know because antipater on his deathbed handed the regency of the kings not to his son cassander as would have been expected but instead to polypericon cassander on the other hand was appointed to be polypericon's second in command a position known as yeah position known as the kiliarch according to diodorus at this point polypericon was quote almost the oldest of those who had campaigned with alexander and was held in honor by the Macedonians. Now, the reason I give you that quote is because Elizabeth Carney, in her article on Polypericon, which everyone should read, speculated as to the motives of Antipater. Like, why would he do this? We don't really know. Carney does point out that it's odd that Polypericon received control of the freaking empire when considering the fact that he had never even had a senior command or even been a satrap. So this whole statement by Diodorus about how he was among the oldest who had campaigned with Macedo- with Alexander is maybe a way of like saying that he just had a lot of experience or something like that, or he was the most respected, which may have been a reason for him to get the appointment, but it just doesn't seem like a good one. It could have been because of what? What you got? I'm getting flashes of that episode of The Office when they're trying to find the temporary oh my God. person to be in charge. And Joe Bennett's like, well, who's been here the longest? And it's Creed. And it's like, well, that wasn't a smart move. <laughs> no, it may have also been because uh, Polypericon had originally been Craterus' second in command because we know Craterus died fighting Eumenes. And so, yeah, I mean, and, that's that's true. When, you, when yeah. you piece those things together, like, no, he's never been in charge in charge, but he's who they've had second string is backup ready to go if needed. Yeah, I think this may be also an example of failing upwards <laughs> because he just happens to be in the place where he just keeps getting these promotions. Uh, may was because he was in control of Macedon when Antipater was gone fighting Perdiccas. It may be because Cassander was considered too young or even unqualified, which definitely ticks off Cassander. Yeah, that'll to- be uh, for Cassander's episode. That'll be a good chicken and the egg type of discussion. Yeah, definitely. It's hard to tell in any case, but doesn't matter. Polypericon's in charge, right? Regent of the kings, legally in control of the empire. I'm sure everything will be fine and everyone will respect this decision, right? Right. No. So obviously everything up to this point has been somewhat of a prelude for Polypericon's career because, and I thank you for your patience, Meredith, everything's about to heat up for him from this point forward. Well, damn. So thank you for staying with us, folks. It's about to get good. It's in the fact, I know it's not going to be good for long. Yeah, but I'm going to go into a lot of detail. <laughs> yeah, you tossed some dates out to me as I was wandering around, and I know we're not going much longer. Yeah, that's the other thing. So we're basically Polly Perrion's getting close to the end of his life here. For example, as we also know, Cassandra did not take this situation well no. at all. No, 
And uh, I have a quote here from Diodorus Siculus because it was just sums it up perfectly. Cassander, however, did not approve of the arrangement made by his father, regarding it as outrageous that one not related by blood should succeed to the command of his father. And this, while there was a son who was capable of directing public affairs and who had already given sufficient proof of his ability and courage. So. Wah. Wah. I'm so ready for his episode. It's gonna be killer, dude. Ah, uh, the Jonathan Reese Myers, Henry VIII temper tantrum gifts I've got ready to go. But like this, I have been coming across so much while I've been researching other people, and I've had to, at great pains, make sure I don't reveal too much of Cassandra's episode. All right. Now, which is funny we say this because I have another note down here that I'll read to you anyway. On the one hand, I don't want to go into too many details about Cassander because, one, we've already covered them in the previous episodes, and I don't want to repeat it ad nauseum. Two, we will most certainly cover those details again during his episode. And three, suffice to say, Cassander said, no, I do not accept this. Just a bad polypericon. Bam. 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 <laughs> On the other hand, we, we also can't ignore Cassander's story because he very yeah. quickly and absolutely becomes polypericon's nemesis. For instance... We know that Cassander immediately started planning a rebellion to overthrow Polypericon and take the regency of the kings and control of the empire for himself. And indeed, it was Cassander's machinations in fomenting this rebellion that would become the first test of Polypericon's regency. All right, uh, as usual, the sequence of events is hard. Oh, gosh, I went through puberty again. <clears throat> as usual, the sequence of events is hard to stitch together with precision. But here's how it likely went down. To begin with, Diodorus goes on to state that Cassander went to the countryside after his dad died, where he could avoid suspicion, and he started to convince his friends to join the rebellion. Then he sent messages to Ptolemy to request an alliance, as well as other unnamed commanders and cities for the same purpose. Y'all can't see it, Marinus dancing in her chair. It didn't take long, however, for this Cold War to get hot. Or at least a little warmer. And even though Polypericon and Cassander are ultimately jockeying for control of Macedon, the battleground for much of their struggle was centered in Greece. This is particularly the case in the attempts to control or obtain the support and allegiance of the Greek cities, especially Athens. Now, remember, after the Lamian War ended in 322, Antipater had imposed harsh sanctions on many Greek states for rebelling against Macedon. This mainly took the form of introducing garrisons into key cities, exiling troublesome individuals, including many of the poor citizens, transplanting entire populations into different or new cities, and replacing democratic governments with oligarchic regimes. And that last bit is the key here. By the end of 319, the opening salvos of the conflict, which would become the second War of the Diadochoi, were fired by Cassander. According to Plutarch, Upon Polypericon's assumption of the regency, Cassander at once became rebellious, and he sent a general loyal to him named Nicanor to take control of the garrison in Athens. So, this brings us to 318. While Nicanor was proceeding toward Athens, Cassander bugged out and crossed over into Asia, where he made another alliance with his dad's old friend, Antigonus the One-Eyed, who was currently fighting our certified best boy, Eumenes. So, Cassander's alliance now includes both Ptolemy and Antigonus. Pretty impressive. 
But remember what we said about the nature of these alliances in our episode about Yemenis. As soon as an alliance forms, it almost immediately begins to fall apart. It's going to be important in a minute. Meanwhile, Polyparacon was making moves of his own. He really comes out swinging. For you see, despite Cassander's attempts to be very sneaky sneaky, Polyparacon seems to have caught on to what Cassie was doing. But as we say here at the old standard, what do? <laughs> Polyparacon knew he had to proceed carefully, so he called together a council of his commanders, friends, and other leading Macedonians to decide their course of action. Polyparacon realized quickly that he was fighting an uphill battle. Cassander had already gathered some very powerful allies. Then there were those Greek cities with Macedonian garrisons staged in, stationed in them. The commanders of those garrisons and the soldiers serving under them had all been appointed by Antipater, and they would likely be loyal to Antipater's son, Cassander. Furthermore, remember those oligarchies that Antipater had imposed? Yes. Well, hang on to that, because that's going to backfire on Polyparacon, but not how you'd think. He knew that obtaining and maintaining the loyalty of the Greek cities was key to his victory. And oligarchies are never popular, right? Right. Oh, right. So the decision was made to issue a decree in the name of the kings, abolishing all the oligarchies imposed by Antipater throughout Greece and restoring their democratic governments. Now, that sounds really nice, right? Really sweet. Yeah, but I mean... Greece has never given me the impression that they're going to be grateful for anything the Macedonians did to them. So it's like, oh, we made you an oligarchy. We'll turn you back to a democracy. Greece isn't going to say, oh, thank you. I will I, be your friend and helper now. First of all, you're 100% correct. I know. Yeah. Nah, I'm play I'm playing. <laughs> nah, no, that's funny. I, lo I love it. I love it. It's called confidence, everybody. You should get you some. Yeah. And also remember that, as I said, the ancient Greeks, especially Athens, is kind of like a like a political Walmart, anything you want to find, and especially everything else you don't want, you will find at Walmart. Oh, well, and also, too, if the oligarchs are made up of some of the richest families, they're just going to be ticked off that they got yep. deposed anyway. Right. That's probably who would have funded most of your army. So. Right. Now you're thinking, and where are they going to head straight to then? Cassander. I was about to say, they're either going to stay at home or they're going to go to Cassander. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, there's always the option to stay at home, Dustin. Well, no, just my thing of like, I didn't, I felt like there was a chance that Greece yeah. would be like, stop messing with us. Yeah. But then also you got to remember like the Greeks don't know when to like, and for God's sakes, if you want, I'm talking about the ancient Greeks, the Greeks don't know when to shut up. So on the one hand, you're right. They have a very justifiable like, or look at Polyparacon and say, like, well, I'm not thanking you. Stay away from us. Leave us alone. But also the Greeks just, they like to poke bears. They, they probably are thoroughly enjoying all of this. Definitely these, some uh, of them. Yeah. All these Diodokoi. Indeed, thanks to Diodorosiculus, we possess the full text of this decree, which I will now offer to you in an abridged version. Inasmuch as it has fallen to the lot of our ancestors to perform any acts of kindness to the Greeks... We wish to maintain the policy to make evident all the goodwill which we will continue to have for that people. It happened that while we were away, certain of the Greeks, being ill-advised, waged war against the Macedonians, who were defeated by our generals, and many bitter things befell the cities. But we, holding fast to the general original policy of preparing peace for you and such governments as you enjoyed under Philip and Alexander, and... We permit you to act in all of the matters according to the decrees formerly issued by them. Moreover, we restore to those who have been driven out or exiled from the cities by our generals from the time when Alexander crossed into Asia 
and we decree that those who are restored by us in full possession of their property, undisturbed by faction, and enjoying a complete amnesty, shall exercise their rights as citizens in their native states, and if any measures have been passed to their disadvantage, let such measures be void. Let all the Greeks pass a decree that no one shall engage either in war or in public opposition to us, and that if anyone disobeys, he and his family shall be exiled and his goods shall be confiscated. We have commanded Polypercon to take in hand these and other matters. Obey him, as we have also written to you formerly. For if anyone falls to carry out these injunctions, we shall not overlook him. Is he speaking about himself in the third person? That's the king's speaking. Remember, gotcha. he issued that decree in, in the name of the, in the, name of the mm-hmm. kings. Because mm-hmm. they totally do stuff. Yeah. Polypericon took it a step further than this, though. Diodorus continues to say that after Polypericon issued the edict, he sent an additional decree to other cities, ordering them to exile those who had been... Oh, apparently this is a, this is a quote, too. <clears throat> ordering them to exile those who had been leaders of the government in time of Antipater even to condemn them to death and confiscate their property in order that these men, completely stripped of power, might be unable to cooperate with Cassander in any way. It's just not smart because the idea is like, I'm if I leave them in power, they might join with Cassander or they might, you know, join, best case scenario, join me or, or you know, other scenario, at least a neutral out of respect to Antipater, because Antipater did say, I want Polypericon, but it seems like a given that if you go in there and you disempower them, that they're going to go to Cassandra. It, I feel like it would have been safer to just leave them alone and kind of roll the dice, whereas taking them out of power is, in my mind, a 100% guarantee they're going to go over to Cassander. Especially when you're condemning them to death. Yeah, yeah, this isn't just you're going back to a democracy and you guys are private citizens now. It's yeah. like, I'm going to strip you of all your things and all your power, and I'm going to kill you. And yeah. you can tell what he's trying to do. He's trying really hard to ingratiate him himself to the democratic, or just to the people. But I 100% agree with you. He's He's going too hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also to, I don't know the structure of these Greek societies, but for some reason, I'm also getting the impression that restored to a democracy, unless these oligarchs had done something really, really heinous, I'm not getting the impression the average Greek citizen would be going, kill him, guys, let's do. So there does seem to be a little bit of that going on, but okay. I would, but no, no, but I would agree with you in a general sense that no, not necessarily, but. What Polypericon is doing is going too far. And my note underneath this is, uh, do you remember that meme from the movie Dodgeball? Famous meme is like, it's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. (laughs) Yeah, because this is, okay, Polypericon, you're really rolling the dice. Next, Polypericon put a couple of letters in the mail, which we've heard of before. First, he sends a message to Olympias, currently residing in her homeland. Go ahead and finish it. Yeah, what, what are these two letters, Meredith? God, please come help me. <laughs> help me. Help your grandson. <laughs> help me. Help me, Tom Cruise. Um, <laughs> it's going to go so bad. Uh, he sends a message to Olympias, <laughs> currently, res- currently residing in Epirus, and he's inviting her to come back to <laughs> Please help me, God. <laughs> Take charge of baby. Come back to Macedon. <laughs> Archie, your grandson, Alex, <laughs> until he comes of age to take the throne. We will recall that Olympias had been in her homeland of Epirus, <laughs> the west of Macedon, since around 3.30, because she and Antipater couldn't get along. 
Second, he sends another message to our certified best boy in the East, you minis. Oh, yeah. And says, yeah. Please, please just take this off me. Please, God. <laughs> I don't want to be in charge anymore. <laughs> Tired of this, Grandpa. <laughs> Except he is the Grandpa. He is the Grandpa. <laughs> and so he has to tell himself, too damn bad. Technically promoting you minis to the rank of co-regent of the king. Mm-hmm. Asking him to either come to Macedon and please God help or stay in Asia and keep and please god help please god help (laughs) 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 lastly poly paracon had one more card to play which makes me angry in ways that it should not poly paracon had his own son to whom he gave for our purposes the absolute worst name ever poly paracon has a son his name is Alexander. Now, I don't have this in my notes, but we need to take a moment, Meredith, and decide for ourselves henceforth just how we want to refer to him. Because I just it's going to be confusing and I don't want to deal with it. Should we call him like Ali P or Alex Paracon or something like that? Polly Alex. Polly Alex. OK, cool. We'll do that. So henceforth, the son of Polly Paracon, Alexander, shall be known as Polly Alex. He won't play a, a, a big role, but. Big enough, but we'll be right back after these messages. Hello, sports and history enthusiasts. This is String Bean Okraman. This is indeed a momentous occasion because we have the brief opportunity to speak to the new reigning region of the kings and supreme commander of the Macedonian Empire, the macho regent Poly Percon. Oh, yeah. Now, Mr. Polypercon, your regency has not been without controversy. There are some, for instance, who believe that the regency of the king should have been given to Antipater's son, Cassander. I am the regent of the kings and commander of the empire, and I will remain regent of the kings and commander of the empire. And Cassander, you know, he's just a punk. Bold words, Mr. Paracon. Yes, they are, because I'm a big, bold man, yeah. Uh, well, what are your plans during the Regency, Polly Paracon? My plan, my plan is I have no plan. My plan is to take everything you expect and do the opposite. If there's something I shouldn't do, I'm gonna do that thing. And if you want me to do something, then... You're not gonna do it? I'm not gonna do it. No, I am not. Well, uh, for instance, many are speculating that the, uh, oligarchic governments in the Greek cities to the south are poised to side with Cassander. Oligarchans. Uh, sounds like a restaurant with free breadsticks, and I like that, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. The oligarchic governments that were installed by Antipater at the end of the Lamian War that consist of the richest citizens. There are movements in some of these cities calling for a return to democracies. Would you consider allowing democratic governments to return? Power to the people, yeah. Now everybody gets democracy, yeah. What about the cities who choose to retain their oligarchic governments? No one eats at the Oligarden when the macho regent is in town. And if you don't want freedom, yeah, well, uh, I might just have to kick the liberty out of you. You can't say that on air. can say what I want. Well, what about the oligarchs themselves? What are you going to do with them? They won't be happy. Kill the oligarchs! 
Kill the oligarchs. Kill the oligarchs. Don't you think that's a tad extreme? But I'm an extreme man. I don't do anything halfway or even all the way. Yeah, I do everything more than I ever needed to. When something's in my way, I throw it on the ground. When I drink wine, I like to dance on the table for hours. Before I go in the battle, I even do one-man theater. No one knows what the macho regent will do. The Macedonian army has a strong contingent of war elephants in its employment. Sixty-five! Yes, sixty-five elephants. Do you plan on using any of them for your military campaigns? All of them! All the elephants? All of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that seem to be a bit reckless and uh, excessive? Have you ever heard of less is more? Yeah, but if less is more, then just think about how much more more could be you. Okay, do you have any parting words for your opponents? Cassander, Antigonus the One-Eyed, and Ptolemy. Mm, yeah. Cassander, you're, um, you're just a pretty boy with a pretty face. And I might have to, uh, slap you in the face. And Antigonus the One-Eyed, yeah. How would you like to be, uh, Antigonus the No-Eyed? Mm, yeah, that might happen. And, and Ptolemy, you should stay in Egypt. Because you don't want to mess with the macho region, Polypericon. You don't want to do that. Well, there you have it, sports and history enthusiasts. Who knows what the regency of Polypericon will hold, or how long he will even hold it. Time will tell. Time will tell. In any case, make sure not to miss this and other matchups of the century at this year's Mayhem in Macedon. And we're back. Polypericon also sent his own son to Athens behind Nicanor. Remember him? Mm-hmm. To try and... Make sure that the Piraeus, which is Athens' port city, did not fall into or remain in Cassander's hands. Now, what we got to know is the Piraeus was really Athens' port city. Today, it's its own, you know, independent city. Independent in the sense of its its own thing. But in the ancient world, it was just commonly understood that the Piraeus was the port city of Athens, to the point that when Athens had their big war with Sparta in the Peloponnesian War back in the 400s, they had actually built these long walls that connected Athens to the Piraeus, just to kind of make sure that they always had a connection to it. So the Piraeus is a pretty big deal. So Polypericon wants to make sure that Cassander does not have control of the Piraeus. Unfortunately, as it turns out for Polypericon, his son, Polyalex, was kind of a shifty dude. Oh. Yeah, we're going to find out. Pretty soon after this, Nicanor, Cassander's general, arrived in Athens, and he indeed took control of the Piraeus. This immediately almost triggered a civil war in Athens between the oligarchic pro-Cassander faction and the democratic pro-Polypericon faction, kind of what you were talking about just a minute ago. This was exacerbated by the fact that not long after Nicanor arrived, Polypericon's son, Polyalex, also showed up and camped outside the city walls. Surprisingly, Polyalex opted not to lay siege to Athens, but instead he opened negotiations. Pretty smart, I guess. Turns out Polyalex is trying to just do stuff for himself. He doesn't care who he's working for. Oh. Uh... Yeah, so the fact that he's opening negotiations might seem like, oh, he's playing it smart. He's just trying to play both sides. In Athens, on the other hand, things got rather silly. Both factions went back and forth, each accusing the other of being traitors or asserting that they were, in fact, the true patriots, kind of like today. Eventually, the oligarchic faction was kicked out, and both sides sent embassies to Polypericon, each side asking for favor and aid in the city. 
So everybody hates each other. Everybody thinks that everybody else is the enemy. And they both go to Polypericon and say, please support us. This actually led to a very interesting scene involving none other than the king, Philip III, our Hedias, which I totally missed when I was writing his episode. And this is a really interesting one. So eventually both embassies arrived at Polypericon's camp near your favorite town from our very second episode, Focus. <laughs> Here then was Polypericon, alongside King Arhidaeus and many of his friends, under a golden canopy. As soon as one of the oligarchic ambassadors approached, a guy named Deonarchus, who was one of Antipater's old friends, started to make his case, Polypericon immediately stopped him, ordered that he be seized, tortured, and put to death. He, he just lives life full throttle, doesn't he? He does. He does. Polypericon does not do anything halfway. Then the various Athenian embassies started shouting accusations at each other, seemingly leading to so much chaos that one of the senior ambassadors got frustrated, came forward to Polypericon and said, just throw us all into one cage and send us back to Athens. He said, okay. Arhidias apparently thought this was hilarious. Good boy. Because he burst into laughter, even, oh, though, God. even though no one else seems to have laughed. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, he, I think he and I are kindred spirits, because my motto, at least when I'm at work, is if I'm not laughing, I'm crying. Exactly. Another ambassador, Phocion, just ignore the similarity to Focus, has nothing to do with it, who was the leader of the oligarchic faction, tried to speak. But Polypericon started interrupting him over and over, intentionally, to the point that Phocion just rage quit, threw his staff on the ground, and walked away. It's like, idiots say what? 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 Huh? What? 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 But then a third oligarch named Goodness. Hegemon, yeah, he started to make the case for his credibility and his dedication to the welfare of Athens. And then Polypericon actually got mad and shouted at him to stop telling lies to me in the presence of the king. Now, this whole thing of telling uh, him not to lie in the presence of the king apparently got a rise out of Arhidaeus, who, according to Plutarch, sprang to his feet and would have killed Hegemon with a spear. But Polypericon quickly threw his arms around the king and thus the whole council was dissolved. So I think this is a really interesting look at how Polypericon was managing the regency. Poorly. Yes. But also, he's bringing the king out. People are going before the king ostensibly, but in reality, they're True. only talking to they're only talking to the regent. And then we see the re you know, when the king starts to assert himself a little bit, Polypericon is there to kind of restrain him. God, it's just like Britney Spears. <laughs> As I'm sure you're picking up on now, Polypericon sided with the Democratic faction, and he ultimately granted them the authority to condemn the oligarchic leaders to death. After this, the oligarchs were led back to Athens for a sham trial, where they were barely allowed to speak in their own defense before being shouted down by the mob, and were then led off to prison, where many of them committed suicide by drinking hemlock. And as a final insult to their memory, their bodies were thrown outside of Athens, unburied. It's just a sucky day. Yeah. Now, the whole thing about not being buried, that's a huge insult in the ancient Greek world. And I know. today, arguably. But, you know, we see in like in the in the Odyssey, for instance, we see. And in Antigone. Mm, oh, yes. Thank. Yes. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, did but that's you the, just write an article about that I a few did. years ago? I did. I forgot. That's the whole plot of Antigone. After all this back and forth nonsense. What about the issue started at all, 
Remember that debacle in Athens? Yes. Nicanor and everything? Yes. He's still there. Okay. No one's gotten rid of him. In fact, while all this nonsense with Athens was going on, Cassander came in with a crack force he had gotten from Antigonus, snuck in and sailed straight into the Piraeus with 35 ships and 4,000 soldiers, strengthening Nicanor's position. What so happens? he's reinforced. So what happens next kind of demonstrates Polypericon's problems in life. But I want you to really think about Polypericon's next moves here. As soon as he heard about Cassander's surprise attack on the Piraeus, Polypericon himself brought a huge army down into Attica, which was the region of Greece where Athens was, and he attempted to besiege the Piraeus. Diodorus says that Polypericon brought a total of 24,000 infantry, 1,000 cavalry, and 65 elephants. My baby. Lucky. Lucky. The one that can only turn left. He's back. He's back. Unfortunately, Polypericon wasn't able to supply and maintain such a large army in Athens. It's because Eumenes is not there with his secretarial powers. Exactly. So he had to split the army in two, okay. leading half of the army into the Peloponnesus in order to force out more of the oligarchic governments left there by Antipater. And he left the other half of the army in Athens under his son, who we have been calling... Polly Alex. Shifty Alex. Yes, Shifty Alex. I like that. His name is now Shifty Alex. A lot of the cities in the Peloponnesus voluntarily obeyed Polypericon, leading to violence in several cities where democratic factions massacred or exiled former oligarchs that had been established under Antipater. One city, however... Megalopolis, literally big town. But wasn't it ironically small? Yep. Okay. That's the irony. Megalopolis wasn't that big of a town. Retained their oligarchic government and was inclined to ally with Cassander, because of which Polypericon decided that he needed to besiege the city and take it by force. And this is where I think you are seeing the irony of Polypericon's policy of liberating the Greek cities and, quote, restoring democracies, because he's just, he's forcing things on people, yeah. Yeah, well, I was about to say, it certainly answers the question of, like, where were you during Eumenes' episode? Because I'm just like, why are we in Greece? We talking about? No, just, like, why are we in Greece when what we should be focusing on is holding oh. on to Alex's, like, this seems like the stupidest tangent. Yeah, it is. No, that's a really good way to put it. It's all this big stuff going on throughout the Empire. And here they're scrambling over some Greek cities. Yeah. I guess the only thing I can say is that Polypericon does have possession of the kings. And he should have just left the oligarchs in power and said, Oh, yeah. You liked Antipater. I'm his chosen yep. guy. Exactly. And, like, yep. and, and, ta and that was a risk. And that was a gamble. But yeah. this is like. It's like he, he was worried that the oligarchs. We're going to like him. We're going to incline towards Antipater's son, Cassander. Yeah, and, and so they didn't even try to yeah. see. He just pushed them. If they'd be yeah. cool. Uh, he, may, he was worried they wouldn't like him. So his answer was to make sure they hated him. I don't like him. There this we go. Is stupid. Stupid. But let's turn back to the siege of Megalopolis here. This is the dumbest stuff I've ever heard. <laughs> no, now it's going to get worse. Which no. turned out to be a very interesting battle. And I got to tell you, Meredith, you're not going to like it. Supposedly, Polypericon tried to pump up his troops. Now, I don't know, Meredith, what this means. So you help oh, okay. me. Yeah, you, help, you help me out here. I'm going to read okay. this to you. Okay. Supposedly, Polypericon tried to pump up his troops by dressing like one of the enemy, putting on, quote, an Arcadian cap. And all that is referencing is a region of the Peloponnese called Arcadia, a double cloak 
and taking a staff in his hand, he said, Such are the men against whom we're now engaged. Then, throwing his Arcadian garments aside and taking up his own weapons, he added, And such, my fellow soldiers, are the men who engaged them, men in great and various battles who have won glorious victories. I think what he's trying to do is be like, look at these wimpy guys we're fighting, and now look at us. Like, yeah, but I don't think you should put oh, a one-man like play. The, uh, it's like the old Spice commercial. It's like, look at your man. Now look at me. Now look at your man. <laughs> <laughs> now back at me. I'm on a horse. All right. The Megapolitans. Megalopolans? Megalopolitans. Refused to back down to a polypericon. They were ready to throw hands. The entire population dug in and mobilized, working around the clock in preparation for the siege. On the other hand, Polypericon's army did pretty well at first. He built huge wooden towers that were taller than the city walls. His sappers dug mines underneath the city walls, collapsing several sections and even allowing for his troops to make a breach into the city. And indeed, the Macedonians poured into Megalopolis, but the citizens actually held them back and rebuilt a new wall in the middle of combat. Pretty good. I'm just shaking my head. <laughs> then Polypericon pulled back, and he got ready for the knockout blow. He started sending in all of his elephants in a full charge. Hey there, folks. This is Dustin from the future. Uh, just to let you know, unfortunately, the next section does contain some depictions of animal cruelty. If that's something you'd rather not hear, then you should skip ahead by about one minute and 45 seconds. Unfortunately for him. No. Uh-huh. No. One of the commanders in Megalopolis had actually served with Alexander in India, and he knew how to deal with elephants. No. You're not going to like this. Here we go. So this commander in Megalopolis, he buried spikes and pieces of wood with giant nails in the trenches around the city, and he covered them up with dirt. And in these same areas, he left openings into the city to lure in the elephant. Then Polypericon fell for it, and he ordered a full charge of all of his elephants. And I'll just read the rest of the battle directly to you from Diodorus. There being no resistance in front. The Indian Mahouts did their part in urging them to rush into the city altogether, but the animals, as they charged violently, encountered the spike-studded frames, wounded in their feet by the spikes, their own weight causing the points to penetrate. They could neither move forward any farther, nor turn back because it hurt them to move. At the same time, some of the Mahouts were killed by the missiles of all kinds that poured upon them from the flanks and others were disabled by wounds, and so lost such use of the elephants as the situation permitted. The elephants suffering great pain, because of the cloud of missiles and the nature of the wounds caused by the spikes, wheeled about through their friends, and trod down many of them. Finally, the elephant that was the most valiant and most formidable collapsed. Of the rest, some became completely useless, and others brought death to many of their own side. So that didn't work. On top of that, I'm very depressed. Yeah. We'll need a whole cheesecake. A whole cheesecake, you say? A whole cheesecake. Did, I, I did. That's like the saddest thing I've ever heard. And we just killed a 16-year-old last episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I agree. That is pretty damn sad. That's... Uh... And I really don't like the fact that everyone's answer to elephants is to get them to step on something, you know? These poor elephants can't see it. It's not mm. fair. On top of that, Polypericon had another setback when one of his fleets was obliterated in a surprise night attack by Antigonus the One-Eyed. 
<laughs> you know, Polyparacon's like, and told you all those years ago, we should attack people at nighttime. Told you. No one listened. Oh, that's a good but point. Also, but also, shame on him you know for what? not anticipating exactly. an attack at nighttime after he recommended it. And also, shame on him for getting all of his elephants killed. Except Lucky, because he's still oh, back yeah. there, spinning in his circle. I'll give you the, yes. And that is why he was left at home in Macedon, where we know that many of the elephants survived and were re- and remained. That is, I do know that. Is that a fact? That is a fact. So, it's a lot of the elephants remain because they're, oh, re- they're okay. referred to later. No, not in, a, not in a bad way. I'll tell you that. Okay. I have no anti-elephant news to report to you for the remainder of this episode. And with that, the explosive year of 318 ended rather frustratingly for old Polly Bearcon. Here's hoping that 317 brings him better luck. Let's find out. So now we're in 317. What's happening? So as you, uh, well, as they say, you reap what you sow, and there were consequences to Polly Bearcon's difficulties throughout the previous year. Uh, let's uh, go back and check in with Athens. Remember, this all started when Athens sent their general Nicanor to command of the garrison of Athens. Well, Nicanor's still there. By now, the Athenians were getting impatient. Neither Polyparacon, nor his son, nor even Olympias had come to liberate Athens from Cassander's domination. So they decided to rethink their alliances. After some debate with the assemblies, Athens switched sides again. First, they were against Antipater. Now, then they were pro-Antipater, then they were pro-Cassander, then they were anti-Cassander, now they're pro-Cassander again! Snip, snap, snip, snap, snip, snap! You have no idea the effect that multiple alliances have on a city! (laughs) (laughs) Michael Scott. Alright, but across Greece, things only got worse for Polyparacon. This is because, as a consequence of his failure at Megalopolis, most of the Greek cities followed suit with Athens, and went over to Cassander en masse. Even in Macedon, poor Polyparacon couldn't get a break. Around this time, Cassander started getting messages from his friends back home in Macedon, begging him to come back home and seize control. Thus, in 317, Cassander made an expedition into Macedon and just kicked out Polyparacon's regime. He just snuck up, kicked him out. Furthermore, from a later reference in Diodorus Siculus, where he's kind of looking back or reviewing previous events. This is where he mentions, Meredith, that Cassander apparently may have taken control of the remaining army in Macedon, including Polyparacon's elephants. Good, and he better treat them well. Right. Give them carrots and loaves of bread. Polyparacon's not there, but this is allows Cassander to, like, kick out his people. And this doesn't mean that Polyparacon's out for the count. He's weakened, but he still has some forces under his control. And indeed, he's going to retake Macedon, but this is nevertheless a serious blow to his legitimacy and power base. So we're clear. It's 317. Cassander just retook Macedon. And no sooner than he arrived, he immediately left. Oh, yeah, I remember mm-hmm. this now. And he went back down to the southern Greece to fight none other than Sperda, who, as I said in the previous episode, was still somehow, some way, still able to stir something still here. up. Yeah, they're still there, apparently, and for some reason, people cared. But we'll cover this apparent resurgence of Sperda in our episode on Cassander. And it just got worse for Polyparacon! Pretty soon as we saw in our Hadias' episode, our certified best girl, mm-hmm. Eurydice, yeah. officially took this moment to officially appoint Cassander as the new regent for the kings. Guardian she's of the smart. Empire. Yes. So, we don't know how and what 
point in the timeline this happened? Because you know, and when we were talking about that embassy that Polyparacon was dealing with, yes, our Hedias was there with him. Yes, we don't know how or why or when, but we do know from this reference that at some point, Arhadias and Eurydice had gone back up to Macedon and Polyparacon had left them alone, which proved to be a mistake because as soon as they were left alone, they basically declared independence from him. Meanwhile, Polyparacon now is going to Epirus to go pick up Grandma Olympias. And by the summer of that year, still 317, Polyparacon finally gets a break, sort of, as we learned in our episode on Arhadias and Baby Alex. Upon arriving in Epirus, Polyparacon linked up with Olympias, who was being escorted by her own Epirot soldiers. So now he's gotten some reinforcements. What happens next was the biggest suspenseful buildup and letdown in history when two badass women, Olympias and Eurydice, squared off against each other. Two queens leading armies into battle. Hashtag mom boss, hashtag feminism, and hashtag hashtag. And then nothing happened when Eurydice's troops refused to fight against the mother and son of Alexander the Great. Instead, Eurydice's troops surrendered and betrayed the king and queen, delivering the Macedonian government back into the hand of Polypericon and Olympias. You see, Olympias, awesome boss that she was, immediately began to dominate the Macedonian royal court and political center, overshadowing poor Polypericon, who seems to have gone chasing after Cassander in southern Greece. Now, we know the tragedy that befell Eurydice and Arhadias. We won't recap it here. Furthermore, we won't linger on what Olympias was doing in Macedon while she was in charge. This brings us to the end of 317. Back in 316, speaking of Cassander, around January or February 316, he ran right back up into Macedon for the second time. Swept through the kingdom, besieged Olympias and the Macedonian city of Pydna. But you might say to me, Dustin. You just said that Polypericon went south into Greece to fight Cassander. Well, how'd Cassander get up to Macedon so quick? And to that, I would offer you two possibilities, Meredith. Either Cassander is just that damn good. Yeah. Or Polypericon sucks that much. What about a little bit of both? So here's how it goes down. All right. As we know, previous year, that is early 317, Cassander bum-rushed Macedon, putting Eurydice and Arhadias in control. Mm-hmm. Then, no sooner than he arrived, went back down into southern Greece to scrap with Sperta and their neighbors in the Peloponnese. So after Olympias and Polypericon retake Macedon, Mr. Polypericon immediately heads south to chase after Cassander. Well, apparently news can travel fast sometimes, because Polypericon had only gotten as far as the area of Perhybia in Thessaly, that region of northern Greece, you know, Macedon's backyard, when Cassander heard about this while he was busy besieging the city of Tegea, which was a bit north of Sparta and west of Argos. Now, for some context, it'll be important in a minute. Thessaly is right underneath Macedon. From Perhybia in Thessaly, where Polypericon was, to Tegea, where Cassander was, was about 251 kilometers or 156 miles as the crow flies. But as far as actual travel distance, it's more like 431 kilometers or around 250 miles, which is around four days walking time point here is that either Polypericon was moving very slowly or news was traveling very fast. In any case, case, as soon as Cassander hears that Polypericon's on the way, that's when he makes peace with the Tegeans and he runs back up to Macedon. And wouldn't you know who pops back up on the scene again? The Aetolians. Uh, Oh, good grief. Yeah. Oddly enough, probably due to their uh, antipathy towards the memory of Antipater, 
The Aetolians decided out of nowhere to make an alliance with Polypericon and Olympias against Cassander. Okay. <laughs> as rem- as re- okay, well, as remarkable as this may seem, it actually doesn't amount to anything at the moment because the Aetolians tried to block Cassander's northern approach by occupying the pass at Thermopylae. But rather than fight the Aetolians, Cassander did the smart thing and just put his army on a boat and sailed all the way around them, all the way up to Thessaly, where Polypericon still had not moved. At the very least, this doesn't have taken about a week. So he's so slow. Polyper- like Cassander heard about Polypericon when he was like five days away and ran back up to Macedon and Polypericon is still there. So anyway, Polypericon's ready to throw down, right? But Cassander, he's a, he's a clever goose. He split his forces into three. One army under a general named Talos went to fight Polypericon. Or was it a distraction? Because another second army went and seized the strategic fortresses and crossing points before reinforcements from Olympias could arrive. While a third army under Cassander himself did some fancy footwork and snuck into Macedon where he besieged Olympias at Pydna. Like I said, we know how the story with Olympias and Cassander ends. He successfully captures Pydna and Olympias and therefore takes control of Macedon for the second and final time. But more on that in Cassander's episode because this episode is about Polypericon and I'm going to stay on topic, sort of. Like we said, one of Cassander's armies under this general named Kalos, he directly engaged Polypericon's forces at Perhybia. But instead of fighting him, he just bribed all of his army to desert him. And, like then he, and then he besieged Polypericon in a town. And so as Diodorus says of Polypericon's army now, there remained only a few, and these the most faithful. Thus, Olympias's hopes were humbled in a brief time. That's because she expected Polypericon was going to come to the rescue. But alas, now he doesn't have the manpower. Pretty soon, Polypericon rightly re- realized that the situation in Macedon was lost. And gathering the remaining troops loyal to him, he escaped to his new allies in Aetolia, where, quoting Diodorus again, he could wait there with the greatest safety and observe the changes in the situation. Around this time on the other end of the empire, as we know, our best boy Eumenes had been betrayed by his own soldiers and turned over to Antigonus. Thus, with the defeat of Polypericon and Eumenes, the second war of the Diadochoi was brought to an end. Which brings us to the year 315. From this point forward, Meredith Polypericon's activity is very hard to trace because he only shows up intermittently and somewhat as a peripheral character in our sources. But we need to be fair. He's most certainly down, but he's not out. He still has a handful of loyal troops. He has an alliance with Atolia. He has a claim to the regency, which is disputable, but it's better than nothing. Furthermore, his son still has an army in southern Greece. Remember that, uh, when Cassander did his midnight booty scoot, you know, up into Macedon, he left the Peloponnese vulnerable to an attack yeah. from Alexander. That booty scoot reference, that's tribute to Paige, because she's the one that came up with that. And indeed, we hear that Polypericon's son, Shifty Alex, had succeeded in taking several cities and districts of the Peloponnese. So Polypericon's position is bad, but he's not out for the count. I mean, we saw Eumenes come back from nothing a couple of times. Yeah, but Eumenes is a brilliant genius. Yes, he is. Now, as a reminder, Polypericon and Eumenes' defeat at the end of the previous year in 316 marked the end of the Second War of the Diadochoi. It should be no surprise, though, that as soon as the Second War of the Diadochoi ended in 316, the Third War of the Diadochoi began in early 315. 
And as the absolute quickest synopsis of how that happened, Antigonus the One-Eyed was getting too big for his britches after defeating Eumenes, leading to a war with his old allies, Ptolemy, Cassander, and Seleucus, as well as a new power player, a general named Lysimachus. But don't worry, we'll totes get his own episode. But Dustin, you might ask, why does this matter for Polypericon? To that, I would first say, how dare you? Then I would say, let me tell you. Okay, you see, Antigonus, now facing this new coalition of Ptolemy, Cassander, Seleucus, and Lysimachus, he was in dire need of allies. So Antigonus sends messages and appeals for help across the kingdom, including 1,000 talents of gold to Polypericon, who was currently in the Peloponnesus, instructing him to raise a mercenary army and attack Cassander in Macedon. Now, as a reminder, as we saw from Eumenes' episode, a thousand talents is a lot of money. At the very least, as a low estimate, that would be the equivalent of $261 million. And as another part of this offer, Antigonus now formally, like it matters, appointed Polypericon as the general of the Peloponnesus. Notice that there was no mention of the regency this time. Oh, that's because baby Alex is dead. Not yet. This is 315. Baby Alex dies in 310. It's like almost like no one cares anymore. Yeah. Right. All right. So now um, Antigonus has kind of rejuvenated Polypericon's position and he brought him on as an ally. What do you think Cassander did? Killed him. Nope. Hearing about this, Cassander decides he wants to make a deal. He's coming to southern Greece anyway. And so he tries to convince Polypericon not to join Antigonus. But Polypericon wasn't listening. It's pretty respectable, right? At least when Polypericon picks a side, that's it. He's trustworthy. Guess who doesn't? Guess who's not trustworthy? Antigonus and Cassander. Nope. Polypericon's son. Oh, Shifty. Uh, Shifty Alex. Yeah, he's with his he's with his dad down in the Peloponnesus. Gotcha. So Cassander goes to Polypericon and is like, "Hey, man, do not join Antigonus. We can we can be cool. We can work this out." Polypericon, you know, just gives him the finger and he's like, "You know, get out here." But then on the way back. Shifty Alex is like, hey, Cassandra, come over here for a second. Let's do business. Because <laughs> Shifty Alex was starting to use Antigonus's money and he was taking cities away from Cassandra in the Peloponnese. And so in response, Cassandra turned around and made the same offer to Shifty Alex that his dad, Polypericon, had rejected. Specifically, Cassandra's offer to make Shifty Alex the commander of the Peloponnese, general of w- with his own army. And he said he would shower him with other honors. And according to Diodorus Siculus, uh, Shifty Alex was all about this because the way he saw it, he was getting the same thing he had always wanted. But instead of having to fight Cassander for it, it was just being given to him. And so he just betrays his dad. This brings us to 314. From here on, references to Polypericon become very spotty for a long time. He's often referred to as existing or being somewhere, but we don't get much more about him for a while. You'll be happy to know, however, that his dirty rat of a son, Shifty Alex, doesn't last very long after this. While departing from the Greek city of Sicyon, which was near modern Corinth, with his army one day, Shifty Alex was killed by people who pretended to be his friends. Interestingly, his wife, Cratisipolis, assumed control of Shifty Alex's troops. And when the people of Sicyon tried to rebel, specifically thinking that it would be easy to defeat an army led by a woman... She crushed the revolt and crucified 30 of the ringleaders. Ironically enough, she's otherwise known for her charity and acts of kindness. (laughs) 
As for 313, we have a single reference to Polyparicon being alive when Diodorus simply states that Polyparicon was still alive and, and active in the Peloponnese. After that, we don't get anything for the next few years until 310, when, yet again, he's just hunkering down in the Peloponnese. By now, that third war of the Diadochoi had ended a year earlier in 311, in kind of a truce, except that Antigonus and Seleucus kept fighting in Babylon and Persia. In reality, however, Diodorus says that no one really cared about keeping the peace treaty, but rather took the opportunity to further solidify their own territories and, and power. For instance, as we saw in the last episode, this is right around the time that Cassander killed baby Alex. Well, late in 310, Polyparicon decided he was tired of hiding in southern Greece and decided to make one more play for power. He sent a message to the Greek city of Pergamon in Asia Minor, where a certain 17-year-old boy was living. You all can't see it, but as soon as I said that, Meredith looked right up at me. I feel like she knows who this 17-year-old boy is. No, I don't even know where we are. His name is Heracles, Meredith. He doesn't exist. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but the sources say that this He's is not when real. Holly Paracon reaches out to the long lost bastard son of Alexander the Great, Heracles, who seemed to have survived everything and was just hanging out in Pergamum. And he summoned Heracles to back to Macedon so that he could join Polyparicon and retake the throne, taking it away from Mino Cassander. And so Polyparicon started gathering allies, asking for help from his friends, from his enemies of Cassander throughout Greece. I know he still has friends, apparently. He reestablished his alliance with the Aetolians, who were happy to help. And he started gathering money to fund the war. Pretty soon, Meredith, he had an army of 20,000 infantry, 1,000 cavalry. Hmm. Not too shabby. As for the rest of 310, we don't know. Maybe he was just kind of involved, you know, engaged in kind of, you know, preparations for war. But by the end of 310, he seems to have uh, indeed marched north with his new army, along with the newish king, Heracles, and made his base of operations in his old homeland, Timphaya, a little bit, you know, on the border of uh, Macedon and Epirus. And it's very likely, in fact, that Polyparicon still had some of those old Epirot troops that had previously served under Olympias. This brings us to 309. Let's go out with a bang. To start off with, Cassander duly set out with an army to fight Polyparicon, who had suddenly gotten this new spring in his step. And then he hears that Polyparicon has this Heracles kid, who supposedly is a long-lost son of Alexander the Great, and Cassander starts to get nervous. The Macedonians as a whole seem to be pretty stoked about the restoration of the king, which made Cassander worry a little bit because he knew fully well that the Macedonians are, they, they like changing sides at the drop of a dime. Thus, he didn't want to risk a fight. Instead, Cassander sent an envoy to Polyparicon with a new offer for peace. He told Polyparicon that if you succeed and you put Heracles on the throne, you'll have to start following orders for the rest of your life. But if Polyparicon... Yeah. Sneaky. Yeah. He said, but he told Polyparicon, if you switch sides and join me, that is Cassander, and kill Heracles, then Cassander would make sure that Polyparicon would, one, recover everything he had formerly been granted in Macedon, two, receive his own army, three, mm -hmm. become a general of the Peloponnese, which seems to be a theme for Polyparicon, four, would be an equal partner to Cassander in ruling Macedon. And lastly, he would be honored above all, whatever that means. So what do you think Polyparicon said? 
No, I think he sticks with Heracles, because you said before he doesn't really tend to switch sides. Although I said Polypericon is trustworthy, he agreed with Cassander and immediately went back and killed Heracles. We don't know exactly how it happened, but we have an idea. Some sources say that Heracles was killed at a feast. According to Plutarch, Polypericon agreed to kill Heracles for the price of 100 talents, which was around $26 million equivalent. Mm. Eh, here's how it went down. Supposedly, Polypericon invited Heracles to dinner. You're going to hate this. He seems to have suspected something, and he turned down the invitation, pretended to be sick. And then Polypericon scolded him and said, Young man, the first quality of your father you should imitate is his readiness to oblige and his attachment to his friends. It's like he drank himself to death. Yeah, and then you're going to love- Get in here. Now you're going to love this. Unless indeed you fear me as a plotter. Oh my God. Yeah. Now feeling ashamed, Heracles agreed to go to the dinner where he was promptly strangled. Remember the last episode when we were talking about like all those different ways to die? Yeah. I think you said strangulation. No, I wanted a pillow smothering. That's the same thing. It is not. <laughs> You're not breathing. I'm not going into detail about this. Yeah, you know, but that's a fight I we say, shouldn't have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Alternatively, Pausanias claims that Heracles was poisoned by Cassander. But that's it. As for what happened afterward, Diodorus vaguely says that Polypericon proceeded to return to the Peloponnesus with his new army, but he was blocked and he couldn't, so he had to winter 309 in central Greece. No, here's what gets me about this. He had he came in there with an army of 20,000, right? Yeah. Part of the deal from Cassandra was I'll give you an army of 5,000. That's like me saying, I'll trade you that $20 bill you've got for this $5 bill. Wow. And you're like, that's awesome. Golly, mister. We don't hear a single thing about Polypericon for the next six years. He doesn't pop up in our records until 303. And even here, with just the briefest reference to the fact that he was still active in the Peloponnese, but nothing about his activity or what he was doing. We do know that Polypericon had acquired a bit of reputation at this time. For one thing, after all of this was said and done, still some people thought he was a great general. For instance, at one point, the king of Epirus, Olympias' homeland, at one point was a guy named Pyrrhus, and he'll be getting his own episode. And Plutarch gives us a story where I feel like I identify with this in a way that makes me ashamed of myself. Pier Plutarch says that at a drinking party, somebody asked Pyrrhus who his favorite flute player was. And Pyrrhus instead replied that he thought Polypericon was a good general. That is you. Yeah. Because <laughs> Pyrrhus thought that kings shouldn't care about silly things like flute playing, but only about war. Now, I got one more detail for you. As our listeners well know, we've had some fun with Polypericon on this podcast. As I, taking full responsibility here, have from almost day one referred to him as a sad dancing clown. Well, there is no sign he was ever a clown. But in a very quick and vague reference, the Greek historian Duras of Samos wrote that, quote, Polypericon, though a very old man, danced whenever he was drunk and put on a saffron robe and Sicyonian sandals and kept on dancing for a long time. That explains that one-man show he did earlier. Exactly. <laughs> he always had a penchant for theater. He never wanted to be a soldier. wanted to be an actor. Uh, in her analysis of this scene, Elizabeth Carney points out a few details and suggests some considerations. 
on the significance of the story. It likely originated from anti-Mastonine propaganda, so it was not meant as a compliment. It may be based on the stereotype of Macedonians being heavy drinkers. The reference to the saffron robe, which was kind of a golden color, and the Sikionian slippers appears to have been an implication and connotation of effeminacy and debauchery, or, quote, a luxurious lifestyle typified by wine, wild behavior, and elaborate dress. Okay, lastly, as for the date of Polypericon's death, we just don't know. He falls off the record. Some historians think he died sometime between 303 or 301, but some may think he lived into the 3rd century, possibly as late as 295. Ultimately, we just don't know. Regardless, such was the mediocre, somewhat inadequate career of Polypericon. And so that we can go to the grocery store and get pizza, let us, and get Meredith dessert, let us proceed to the rankings. Aristea. Battle prowess. You go first, Meredith. Sucks. No, I don't like him. I don't like it. I don't think he did a good job. Every morning, I think Polypericon woke up and he made a list. Two lists. On one side, things I should do. On the other side, things I should not do. And I think he got his list mixed up. Because, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm trying to give him credit. Okay, he was clearly no, promoted. To, yeah. He was clearly he was clearly promoted because someone saw some competency. But we didn't get to see that competency. Every time he got the ball, he fumbled. And how's that for your husband making a sports reference? He's so good. Yeah, I'll give him I a two. I, I, I'll give him a two. Really? Somebody saw something. That's a okay. One. No, 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 it's got to be more than two because we gave our Hedias a one and he didn't even do anything. He did more, personally. You don't get points just for leading around an army and then doing poorly. Well, like, he got promoted. It, lots of people have gotten fine. You can give him a two. I'm giving him a zero. So for two. All right. That's two. Eutychia. Success. Let me go first. <laughs> that's a success. Not good. I mean, I, even the fact that he seems to have gotten to just die a natural life to me says everybody recognized him as such a non-threat. There was no point in killing him. Like, a six, <laughs> a six two teenage boys were worth killing and wrapping up more than him. Damn, Meredith. Oh, that's savage. I like it. All right. Um, inviting back Olympias was a good move. Given that the play with Heracles was, was a smart move. Mm -hmm. But, um, but he, he stopped the successfulness of that himself. Now, what you and I said in the beginning of this podcast, we're not taking points away from mistakes made. We're asking, can we give points to things done well? Yeah. And so I'm not giving points to that because that wasn't seen through to completion okay, because, so, of yeah. because of his own self. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something that Carney said too. He's, I, I think I got the, the uh, note right here is like, he was good at developing strategy, not good at implementing it. He was slow to act. He second-guessed himself. He didn't have charisma. He couldn't command loyalty. I'm trying to give the man a point. I'm fine if you want to give him a point. I'll give him two. Two. The thing with Olympios was good, and I actually think what he was doing at Athens wasn't that bad. The rest of the Greeks, where he was just, like, killing everybody, that was dumb. The Athenian part, he seemed to have played pretty well. He didn't get Athens, though. No, but I'm talking about just how he was playing the factions against them. But, you know, you're right about him losing the military control and him losing support later. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. 
But that one scene where he was just like, yeah, bring the embassies over here to me and you get tortured. Yeah, I'll give him. No, you're right. I'll give him one. One. What are you giving him? I'll give him a one as well so he can have his two. (laughs) Akon. Image. So, not really a surprise. No contemporary images, although now I understand why so many images of elephants were popping up. Oh, God. When I was looking for something. He is, oddly enough, credited in the Alexander movie, like with an actual actor's name and everything. And I found like a screenshot of him. So I just texted it to you. So in the past, we were at least giving a point for film depiction. Let me tell you something. When I think of Polly Paracon, this is the face I see. This is great. This is great casting. No, because he just looks like a bumbling veteran dude who's out of his element. Okay. Yeah. Well, for Perdiccas, we gave him, we seem to have each given him two points for the fact that he did appear in the movie because that's all we had for him. I'm give. I'll give, I'm going to go ahead and tell you my, my point for Polly Paracon here is a single point for that image. Okay. I will also give him a point. Now, again, this is, you know, not taking anything away from Polly Paracon. I like that picture. Yeah. I like that casting. I'd be curious to see what he does in the movie. Probably nothing. Mania. Craziness. Did you do anything, Meredith, that made you go, the hell were you thinking? Yes. I think the whole situation with the oligarchies and the democracies in Greece was a debacle. I thought he was pretty crazy for taking the time to rally up these troops and armies around this alleged son of Alexander to then just say, I'll take $5 when I have 20 I thought his whole handling of the embassies where he was like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to interrupt. <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you the entire time. <laughs> I'd give the man a, a solid uh, four. I will agree with you on the Heracles thing. I think just for laughs, I'm going to agree with you on the Athens thing about the going to kill you, going to yell at you, going to interrupt you. I love that. Three. Okay. So seven. And just as crazy as Perdiccas. In the sense that he was just as dumb as Perdiccas. Yeah. Here we go. You ready? Mm. And Kronos time. All right. Now, he's appointed as the regent in three, uh, nine to teen. But the question is, Meredith, where do you think we should cut off his uh, regency? I would think at the end of the War of the Second Diadokoi. I would agree. So that would mean 316. So that means he, well, we'll give him to it. We'll say as long as 315. Okay. Because it's at the end of the year. So we'll say that he gets four points. Four years? Four years, rather. Okay. And. So that'd be 6.16. Because to clarify to listeners, what was cut out of Alex the Force episode was us realizing we've been dividing when we should have been multiplying. So we fixed everyone's scores. Everybody kept their same position. It didn't edge anyone out in front of the other, but everybody went up a nice little bit. So he's got a 6.16. Finally, here comes the bonus point. Catastrophe. Did he die in his sleep peacefully or was did his ass get assassinated? He presumably died in his sleep. The fact that we don't know how he died, I think we can assume that he died in his sleep. I'll tell you what, he lasted long enough to give him a bonus point, Meredith. So, what we got here? Give he has a 20.16. Oh my god, that actually means he beats a few people. Which means, no, Sweets, he's in last. He's in last? 
Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So, Meredith, does Polly Paracon get the no. Alex? No, he does not. No, he doesn't. <laughs> well, as a total surprise, Meredith, our next episode is Antigonus the One-Eyed. And let me tell you, oh. it's going to be a good one. Okay. Because I love me some Big Bear Antigonus. That sounded so weird, but I think we need to keep it in. All right, everyone, I have to go buy Meredith a cheesecake now. And I think there's a pizza coming our way. Basically, a lot of calories for us tonight because we're exhausted. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a ranking or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook at the Alexander Standard Podcast, Instagram at Alexander Standard Pod, Twitter at Alex Standard Pod, and you can always email us at alexanderstandardpod at gmail.com. And this has been the Alexander Standard. Good night, everybody. What are you keep looking at out there? The sun. It's fun. It keeps changing on you. No, I just keep it in the thing that's like severe thunderstorm in your area, but it's so sunny. Oh, wow. 